3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 8.55am 3CR. This is Monday Breakfast. You're here with James, Rob and Grace. How was your weekend, everybody? Lovely. I went to the beach yesterday, so that was awesome. But you. I couldn't take the sudden change of heat, so it wasn't the best best time, but I had fun. Doesn't it? Doesn't the heat hit you straight yeah. after winter? Exactly. Oh, yeah. How about you, Rob? Yeah, not really a whole lot to report. Um, spent most of the weekend being vertical, uh, horizontal. Sorry, just <laughs> flat on a couch. <laughs> That's a like, dream. Not really much to report. I went to the corner hotel yesterday and had a lovely meal, but that's about it. Uh, yeah, my weekend was football-based. Played in the pub footy pride round on mm. Saturday, Sick. which was a great day. And I kicked a goal. Nice. I kicked a goal. We all love that feeling. Very happy with myself. First goal of the year after like 10 games. Wow. So I'm a happy, happy little bugger. And it was good to celebrate mm. all our siblings and cousins everywhere in the pride round. It was great. Awesome. I love good family moments. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. And I actually played footy against my housemate, M. Collard, who's my co-host from The Sporting Record. Oh. Had a little bit of biff. <laughs> it was safe biff. Safe, I, I love safe how you say biff. Safe, I... yeah, safe and inclusive biff. Uh, it was very good. Mm. So we've got a jam-packed show for you today. Uh, we've got El Nino talking about that. We've got anti-nuclear, mm-hmm. bushfire and heat risk, and the founder of the I Am Me Foundation. So that's massive. So, before we get into all that, we'll jump into a few headlines. Yep. So, the Victorian government is encouraging new and emerging Aboriginal organisations to apply for new grants from the Maram Nyongin Aboriginal Youth Mentoring Program. It's delivered and designed by First Nation Victorians to help with the needs and interests of young Aboriginal people. The new round of grants are up to $335,000 over three years. Mariam Nangin translates to We are strong in the warring language of the Wurundjeri people. Mentoring provides social and practical support for young Aboriginal people to strengthen the family and community relationships, learn about culture, and engage with education, training, and employment. Having a trusted relationship with a mentor helps create a culturally safe space where the mentee can enjoy social connections, receive men- encouragement, and also share their experiences. This flexible Place-based mentoring program will provide tailored support reflecting the diversity of Aboriginal communities across Victoria. Those who are successful will receive support to run programs from the Koori Youth Council in recognition of their statewide leadership as a representative body for the young Aboriginal people in Victoria. The application closed exactly in in about a month, 26th of October and Thursday. So yeah, you can head to... The Maram Nyangin Aboriginal Youth Mentoring Program link in the Victorian web, Victorian website, the Victorian government website. Yep. So yeah, just check it out from there. Nicely done. 
Uh, in other news, gambling companies have been accused of using big tobacco's tactics in a push for weaker regulations. A dozen public health experts have accused gambling companies of replicating the tactics of big tobacco by funding research into the harms they cause while lobbying governments to soften regulations. These academics said that the commercial gambling industry operates from a similar playbook to other health-harming industries like tobacco and alcohol, and this involves delaying and circumventing regulation, developing innovative products and promotions, appealing to new markets, co-opting the production of research and knowledge, and capturing public health responses through corporate political activities. There you go. The largest ever sample of soil taken from the surface of an asteroid has successfully landed on Earth. Mm. Shot from the OSIRIS-REx capsule 100,000 kilometers away from the planet, the sample parachuted into Utah's, Utah's desert. It represents the biggest sample collected from space since the Apollo moon rocks and brings us another step closer to understanding how our solar system formed. That's a good one. Apparently, Australia had a big role in that. Really? I don't know mm-hmm. what role that was, but there was an Australian dude on a plane tracking it. Wow. Tracking the capsule. Wow. Pretty good. It's pretty epic. Pretty epic. So, talking of epic, we're going to get into our first interview today. Uh, we've got Dr. Carl Braganza, uh, who's going to be talking about El Nino and the positive Indian Ocean dipole. That's tending to draw rain away from Australia, otherwise known as El Nino. The Bureau is today declaring that an El Nino event is underway in the Pacific Ocean. At the same time, we are declaring that a positive Indian Ocean dipole, or positive IOD event, is occurring in the oceans to our west. Both these climate drivers have a significant influence on the Australian climate, um, in particular favouring warmer and drier conditions, particularly over spring, but also into early summer. Um, Those conditions are associated or accompanied by an increase in fire danger and extreme heat risk. Um, Importantly, with the El Nino now settling into that pattern in the Pacific Ocean, um, that increases our confidence that this pattern is going to last until the end of summer, and that will mean that we are likely to see a continuation of the warm and dry conditions over the summer months in particular. Importantly for our preparation for summer, Um, particularly for fire danger and heat hazards. We are already seeing extreme conditions in some parts of the continent, particularly in the duration of heat. So we've had an extended period of warm and dry weather to start spring. Um, Today we've had catastrophic fire conditions on the south coast of New South Wales, just to underscore that risk. While we are different to leading into black summer in 2019, where we had years of preceding drought, we do have a wetter landscape out there it is drying out more rapidly than um, than has occurred in recent years, and we are seeing that elevated risk now now occurring in eastern New South Wales in particular, um, and Sydney equaling its record so far today for, for temperatures for September. Globally, um, the El Nino really means that we have a continuation of the global heat that we've seen in the global oceans in particular, and the global oceans have been at record temperatures since about April Um, So consistently what we are probably projecting for the summer is that Australia will continue to see warm and dry weather and it's really up to individuals and communities now to prepare for a a summer of um, um, heat and and fire hazards. Uh, 
questions. Sorry, I know you've just said all that, but just can you repeat um, precisely, are we in El Nino now, or is it about... To, no, we're... we're we, yeah, yep, sure. Now, today, today we're declaring an event. So we have been at El Nino Watch since March, and then we moved to Alert, um, which is our next level in June. Um, we have been waiting for the atmosphere to, what we say, couple with the ocean. So the oceans have been in El Nino pattern for a couple of months. Um, in the last two weeks, we have seen the atmosphere over the tropical Pacific respond to that pattern and lock in um, a coupling of the ocean atmosphere. And that's the sort of thing that sustains an El Nino event um, out until autumn. So right now, um, the Bureau is declaring that we are in an event um, and we're also in a positive IOD or Indian Ocean Dipole event. When these two things occur together, that tends to increase the severity of um, rainfall deficiencies in particular um, for the southeast of the continent over spring. What does that mean, uh, and I know you, you have said this in, in your opening statement, but just to clarify, what does that mean for summer um, in Victoria? So Victoria in particular can expect to see um, an extension of the warm and dry conditions that have been forecast with our long-range forecast model for some months now. Um, when we get a positive IOD over the spring, um, that tends to really have an influence on Victoria's rainfall. Um, coupled with the El Nino, we'd expect to see um, conditions probably out to mid-summer now for Victoria, um, looking at warm and dry. Uh, Sydney, similar. Uh, yeah. So New South Wales, similarly, um, similar to Victoria, has a large influence from the positive IOD over the spring spring period. Um, and we're already seeing um, that extended period of warmth um, since the start of the month in those two states. My last state-based question, WA, what's the hit for them? That's, uh... Yeah, so it's not always the case that a positive IOD and an El Nino has an influence on WA. Um, looking at our long-range forecast model, um, we are seeing dry conditions forecast for most of WA except the Pilbara over the next three months. Are there any indications of how strong this El Nino will be? Uh, not at this point. The atmosphere has taken some time to respond, which sometimes signifies that an event um, won't gain the strength in terms of um, the, the sea surface temperature patterns and, and the atmospheric response over the Pacific. Having said that, the strength of an El Nino by those measures doesn't necessarily correspond to the severity of the rainfall deficiencies over Australia. So we have had weak events that have caused quite significant drought, and we've had strong events that haven't caused um, such severe conditions in the past. Um, really, it's, it's down now to looking at the long-range forecast model, um, which we will continue to run for the next three months ahead, and that's updated daily. For, for want of a better term, is this, does El Nino mean we're in for a dangerous summer? I think El Nino means that we've elevated the risk of um, fire danger and extreme heat in particular in terms of the hazards that we face. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we aren't leading into this summer on the back of extended drought, which somewhat reduces the risk, but we have seen eastern New South Wales dry out quite particularly, and I think there's 61 fires burning in the landscape in New South Wales at the moment. So that just underscores if we continue to dry out the landscape over the next three months, and the Bureau will be watching that really closely, um, then we'll be adjusting our message accordingly in terms of the risk. Ten, ten years ago when we had, was that our last El, El Nino event when we were in that terrible drought? Uh, so the 2019 um, summer wasn't actually an El Nino event. We did have a positive IOD um, during that period. We held El Nino light conditions, so um, underscoring that the strength of the El Nino doesn't necessarily match the impacts on Australia. Um, but during that drought period, we certainly had um, an El Nino. So the drought period lasted from about 2017 to 2019. 
um, and in New South Wales at the time was the hottest and driest period on record. Um, so we don't quite match that this year because we've had um, rainfall for the last several years. Um, but yeah, as I've said earlier, um, the eastern parts of New South Wales, particularly along the coast, have dried out quite rapidly in recent months. The World Meteorological Organisation declared on Nino two months ago. Why has Meteorology taken so long? Yeah, so there's different indicators used for El Nino. Um, there's no definitive de um, um, description of this phenomena. Um, it, it's a coupled ocean phenomena, so it has to have um, conditions meeting El Nino thresholds in the ocean and in the atmosphere. The Bureau's criteria, and there's four criteria we go by, is basically the atmospheric circulation, which is the strength of the trade winds in, in the tropics, and what we call the Southern Oscillation Index, which is a measure of um, um, pressure between Tahiti and Darwin. We also look at sea surface temperature patterns and the forecast models. Up until now, only two of those criteria have been met, which is the strength of the sea surface temperature patterns and the models that we run here and internationally. Um, other jurisdictions, so the US has declared uh, an El Nino event earlier. Um, they tend to um, set their declarations on the ocean temperature patterns alone. That suits their part of the world. In Australia, um, most of the impacts come from the change in the atmospheric circulation. So we wish to follow our own metrics in terms of an event declaration. And we've been using this system now for several years in Australia, so we've been consistent with that. Does this indicate um I mean, where does this fit within climate modelling? Is this the start of climate change or is it too early to, to, to put this down? Or is El Nino a totally separate thing? So El Nino is a natural phenomenon. It's part of the natural variability of the climate system. So typically in Australia, which has always been impacted by heat and floods, El Nino is a large controller of that. So La Nina means flooding and um, El Nino tends to mean drought. Um, those things don't occur in isolation of global warming in the background. So we have had globally record warmth in the oceans since April. Um, and to give you an idea that the interplay between the two, we believe that that continued ocean warmth is potentially one of the things that slowed down the atmospheric response. Typically you have cool conditions in the Western Pacific and warm conditions in the Eastern Pacific, and that drives that reversal in the trade winds. This year we've had just continued warm conditions everywhere, which is more to do with the background trend in global warming than it is to do with El Nino. Um, the temperatures that we saw in the, in the Northern Hemisphere up until now have largely been driven by global warming trends rather than El Nino. El Nino tends to impact global temperatures from now until the middle of next year. So unfortunately, we'll probably see a continuation of the global heat um, up until the middle of 2024. In all likelihood, um, we can expect that this summer will be hotter than average and certainly hotter than the last three years. And you're saying with that, could it also extend beyond summer as well, right into the middle of the year? Or? Typically, an El Nino event breaks down in early autumn. That's the traditional cycle that it follows. Um, sometimes you even see the event back off um, in, the, in the latter half of summer. Uh, but this year, going from the way the ocean temperatures have been ramping up and the international models, I'm expecting the event to, to probably last until the end of summer. You mentioned that up until now only two of the criteria have been met. What's the third that has now been met? Is that the Southern Oscillation Index? Yeah, the Southern Oscillation Index, what we call the 90-day average, so that's looking at sustained change in the Southern Oscillation Index. Um, ticked over last week for the first time. It has been bumping around, so we were waiting another week to see that it has settled into that pattern, and this week we have confirmed that. Um, the trade winds haven't reversed in the way that they no normally do with an El Nino event, but we have seen a weakening of them in the past week. 
Um, so, yeah, given all of those indicators, and we really need to meet three of our four criteria to declare an event, um, so that has been passed today. I'm sorry, I know you touched on it a little bit earlier, but I've just got a couple of questions from Sydney from now as well. Can you talk through heat records and whether they've been broken over there? So last I checked, Sydney Obs Hill was at its September record, which I think is 34.6. And then last I checked, the northeasterly sea breeze had come in, so I don't think we're going to go higher than that today. Um, Sydney Airport did get up to 35.9, I think, today. So it has been hot in the Sydney Basin area. The strength of an El Nino doesn't necessarily correspond to the like lack of rainfall. Can you talk through other factors that would affect, say, how dry Australia might be this summer? So... When we have a La Nina event, the strength of a La Nina event typically is directly correlated with how, how much rainfall we get. So, so La, Nina, La Nina... No, 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 I was just going to say, yeah. So, so for a La Nina event, the strength of the event really does signify how much rain we're going to get. Um, for an El Nino, it's not quite the case. And that is because we get other influences during summer. Um, this time around, going into summer with the positive IOD um, and with what's called a net negative southern annular mode, so the circulation in the southern hemisphere is also favouring dry conditions, um, we would expect that we have less of an influence from random weather and other things than we would if we just had the El Nino alone. Um, but just the physics of it is that we can't really predict the strength of the Australian rainfall coming off our El Nino. Um, it's, yeah, it's... it's it's, it's to do with the number of influences in the Australian region, um, but it's also to do with just the nature of the El Nino Southern Oscillation itself. So does anyone have any weather-related questions? Yes. Yeah. Mary, just can you just clarify, um, have we broken any records over the past seven or eight days? I know there was some talk that if we were over 20 degrees for seven days, would be that's the biggest run we'd have in September since 1987, but I don't know if that's right. <laughs> Um, that would technically be more of a climate question. Um, just in terms of the observations that we have seen sure. for Melbourne, we have seen a very prolonged run of days above 20 degrees, uh, including yesterday where we reached that 20 degree mark um, technically this morning, but it still counts as yesterday's observation. So we are in this run of very, very warm weather, which hasn't been seen for many, many years. What are the conditions that led to a catastrophic fire danger being declared in the New South Wales far south coast this afternoon? Yep. Uh, so essentially we've got a big high pressure system sitting across the Tasman Sea. It's directing really warm northerly winds along the east coast. That is increasing the temperatures through New South Wales and Victoria, particularly about the south coast of New South Wales today. Uh, this was previously assessed as being severe fire dangers, but this morning's assessment saw that those winds were a little bit stronger than previously forecast. And as a result, we pushed that warning up to a catastrophic fire danger level. So what's quite unusual about this heat at this time is the prolonged nature of it. Uh, we do often see a couple of hot days starting to come through during September, but the fact that we've seen so many hot days in a row hanging around for seven, eight days across New South Wales and Victoria is quite unusual. And what does the outlook tell us about what is in store for New South Wales far south coast as well as other parts of the state? Um, so looking at the next seven day forecast, we do have the catastrophic fire dangers for the far south coast today. That is going to ease somewhat tomorrow as we're expecting a cold front to come through and start to cool things down just a little bit. However, tomorrow we are going to see severe fire dangers about the Greater Sydney and Greater Hunter districts uh, and that is likely to trigger a total fire ban as well. It depends on the RFS's decision there. 
one way or the other, very hot and quite windy conditions are expected for the central and northern parts of New South Wales tomorrow before that cold front comes through. Uh, Victorian officials have also flagged that this state's bushfire season could also start earlier due to some of the conditions we're seeing. Is that something that you're also seeing? Um, for that one, I think I'd have to refer to you to AFAC who put out those um, forecasts. We do have a cold front crossing the bite at the moment. It is expected to reach parts of the southeast starting from tonight going into early tomorrow morning. It will sweep across Tasmania and Victoria through tomorrow and then gradually push up the New South Wales coast through the later part of Wednesday going into Thursday. So this will bring some welcome relief to the heat. Hobart is going for a top of just 14 degrees tomorrow, Melbourne 17 degrees, while Sydney still going for 34 degrees as it'll be ahead of that front. But the cooler weather will settle into New South Wales as well through Thursday and Friday. Uh, yeah, so the fire outlook for Eastern Australia um, has really focused on the eastern coast. So when we're looking at fire potential um, that is probably above what we'd be expecting um, and would require additional resources to fight a fire if it started running, it's really eastern Victoria, so in Far East Gippsland and the coast along New South Wales, but then extending inland in northern New South Wales as well. Um, in terms of the start of the fire season, it's a little bit hard now to actually say when the fire season started starts. So what we've seen over the last several years is that the fire season, so the first day of significant fire danger um, weather, um, has actually been brought forward by several months. So um, now in, the, in, in recent years, we typically start preparing for a fire season in August or September um, with a view that fires will probably already be burning in the landscape from September and October, and that's certainly what we're seeing this year. And that was Dr. Carl Braganza, the climate manager, about, climate manager from Borough of Meteorology, who said both El Nino and a positive Indian Ocean Depot, also known as IOD, tends to draw away rain tends to draw rain away from Australia. The borough has declared that El Nino is there it's here after three of the four El Nino criteria were met including a sustained response in the atmospheric circulation above the tropical, tropical Pacific. Great work, Grace. Uh, so now we're going to be joined by David Sweeney, who is a prominent Australian anti-nuclear campaigner and who works for the Australian Conservation Foundation as their nuclear policy analyst. David, thanks for coming on to the show today. Hi, hey, pleasure, Jane. Uh, now, nuclear energy has come back into the spotlight recently in the Australian public discourse. Uh, why is this happening? Yeah, I think it's a combination of a couple of reasons. One, uh, some are legitimate, some are certainly not. Um, I think one driver of it, James, is uh, the awareness, like we've just heard from the last story, the awareness of the uh, not looming but here nature of climate change, mm. increasing climate chaos and unpredictability and extreme weather events and extreme dangers and natural disasters. Um, and so people are like, well, we need to change the way we do energy. And that's the good part of having this nuclear debate or conversation, as they call it. Mm. Um, the bad part is that this is not a credible... The Bureau is today declaring that an El Nino event is underway. In the Sorry about that, Dave. Keep going. No, you're fine. The, the bad part is that this is not uh, uh, an effective recipe or an effective approach or response to the pressing needs of, of changing our energy due to climate impact. And there's parties, political and other, that are using this as a delay tactic, as a confusion tactic. It's a bit of tinfoil in the radar to confuse 
confused where we really need to do what we really need to do to address climate change. Um, and so a lot of this discussion is more about political power than generating electrical power, James. It's, mm. um, it, uh, people who have been climate deniers for years, or at least climate sceptics and renewable sceptics, are now jumping on climate change and saying, so therefore we need to embrace nuclear power. So we've got the Barnaby Joyces and Matt Canavan and Keith Pitt and all these people that have been raising eyebrows at, you know, climate science for a very long time are now embracing it to say, oh, well, that's why we need to go nuclear. Um, so that is not about uh, climate response. That's about trying to hold together a quite disparate party in under one banner because you can unite the technically enthusiastic uh, uh, liberals mm. and the renewable-hating nationals and that full spectrum in between um, under the banner of let's go nuclear. Right, that's really interesting. It's a, it's, it's kind of an umbrella for a whole bunch of disparate views. Um, yeah, largely it is. Those groups... Uh, they're trying to work to justify that nuclear is safe and cost-effective option for alternative energy. You've been campaigning in this for a long time now. From your perspective, is nuclear viable in this country and is it even desirable? There's a short answer and a long answer, and the short answer to both is no. Um, not, not desirable, not practical. Um, the long answer is the long answer, which we could really go into, and it is, it is about economics. Mm. It is about safety. It is about waste and management. But actually, it's particularly about why wouldn't you use what we've got? Why don't you play to your natural advantage mm. when it comes to energy? And Australia is blessed, James. We've got these massive uh, world-leading energy reserves and resources here in wind, in solar, and a whole suite of renewable technologies. And that's where we need to be going. On the costing level, by every costing, nuclear is the most expensive energy option. And so on that level alone, you think the economic rationalists would use a bit of rationality and knock it out of the park, but the politics trumps the dollars for them because by saying, um, let's go nuclear or let's have a nuclear debate, one of the real dangers in that is that it delays what we need to be doing, which is supercharging the adoption and the deployment of renewable energy. Yeah. And it, it, it's this quiet sort of subtext of some of the pro-nuclear voices. We don't need to actually do anything. Just business as usual, steady hand at the tiller, and don't worry too much because sometime in the next decade or two, these clever boffins will turn around with a silver bullet. And that is really not a responsible or a credible way to approach the management of what's increasingly, obviously, a major crisis. Yeah, right. Sounds like the nuclear debate is just another covert way of delaying action on climate change, from what you're saying. Largely is. It largely is. And it, it's a really a deadly distraction because if we don't address climate change, we're in incredible trouble. Like the two existential threats, according to the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, the, the reason that doomsday clock that measures humanity's proximity to extinction, the reason we're at 90 seconds to midnight, are the twin threats of nuclear war and unchecked climate change. And nuclear power is not a solution. It fact, worsens um, those. So it's, it's not the way forward, particularly when we've got a swag of, of options that are much more deployable, much cheaper, more reliable, quicker, and enjoy far greater social licence. Mm, that's, that's a great point. 
just to finish off, uh, the elephant in the room is that when we talk about nuclear, we think of the big risks like, you know, Chernobyl meltdown or Fukushima in Japan. And there was a timely article by the Batuta Advocate, always helpful in these debates, uh, that came out saying the, polit the political party behind the MBN rollout that failed, the 2016 census meltdown, wants to build nuclear reactors, having a bit of a jab that can we really trust these actors to roll out this safely? So, Dave, do you think we could trust government and industry to roll something as risky as nuclear out safely? Well, I don't think um, I don't think we can, and I don't think we can for a number of reasons. And one is that the nuclear is being promoted. The, the, there's no one in Australia that's saying we should build the nuclear reactors that exist in the world today. They're saying we should build ones that are currently on drawing boards and not in commercial deployment anywhere in the world. So they're saying that our energy system is based on an energy system that is not in commercial deployment anywhere in the world and turning their back on renewables. So I think they can roll out hypothetical nuclear safety because it's hypothetical. It's not working. It doesn't produce. So it doesn't produce waste either. So that would be as close as you come to a safe reactor. I think the industry has proven that even when it operates, without a massive accident like you um, said, James, without a Fukushima or without a Chernobyl, every day it generates high-level radioactive waste that lasts for hundreds of thousands of years. It's an intergenerational burden. It's not clean. It's not zero emission. It's not cheap and it's not safe. And so we say for all those reasons, it's not an appropriate response to the urgent need to change our energy system to address climate challenges. And our future is renewable, not radioactive. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dave. That was a bit of a mic drop. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity and the work. No worries. Have a good one. That was David Sweeney, a prominent Australian anti-nuclear campaigner who works with the ACF as their nuclear policy analyst. We're going to jump to a song now. This is Why by the legendary Kutcher Edwards. So woman down the street, little children at her feet, looking for a special treat. She can't even make ends meet. Saw the tear in her eyes as she kissed the children goodbye. Taken by the wealthy man, I guess she's trying to understand. Oh, why? Oh, why? Please tell me why Do the children cry? Oh, why? Oh, why? Please tell me why Do the children cry? Oh, how her heart bleeds Pressured by the children's needs In a world of so much greed When love can't buy a feed She can't even buy them shoes 
Now she's got the blues Never any good news This story is sad but true Oh why Oh why Please tell me why Do the children cry Tell me why do the children cry? It's a Leroy coming. Sense of truth and lies as she looks at it is gone by. Oh, how it makes her cry! Oh, why? Oh, why? Please tell me why. That was Why by the legendary Kutcher Edwards. And now we're going to be joined by Roger Jones, who is a professorial research fellow at the Institute for Sustainable Industries in Livable Cities of Victoria Uni. And we're going to be talking about the upcoming bushfire and heat risk for Victoria. Roger, thanks for joining us today. Not a problem. Now, there are a lot of reports about the upcoming summer, summer looking like a bad one in terms of fire and heat risk. How do we know this now in September about what's to come? There are two reasons. One is because uh, we've had record temperatures uh, around the world, um, mainly in the Northern Hemisphere, um, for the past six months. And we've also got an impending uh, El Nino and... Mm. um, well, the El Nino has just been declared by the Bureau, uh, which changes the weather patterns across the Pacific. Uh, the other addition is um, positive Indian Ocean Dipole, which is over the other side of Australia, which means that we get um, additional heat uh, on top of the other warming, which means that if we get those those two heat, the uh, El Nino, on top of the already very warm global temperatures, um, it could get very warm. Right, that makes a lot of sense. So bushfire risk is no doubt a commonplace concern in Australia, especially after 2020 happening recently. But heat is also being raised as potentially particularly dangerous. What makes extreme heat so worrisome, Roger? Well, there, there, there are two things. One is that because... 
bushfires are an emergency, they're immediate, they're terrifying. Um, they get our consciousness, um, and, and also fire is very present in people's imagination and culturally. And, and so that's associated with emergency and danger, whereas heat is actually quite different, and it has been called the silent killer because what happens uh, with extreme heat to, to both to people and to animals, um, other animals, is that they get extremely lethargic and tired and become disoriented. And so what happens when we look at the actual statistics is that people might be affected by fire directly, um, but a limited number of people are injured or killed in fires. Mm. Whereas when we look at the temperature data, um, it can be hundreds to thousands of people. So excess deaths, as you call them, when you look at the statistics for some of these events around the world, have um, climbed up to tens of thousands of people. Uh, in, in Australia, they can be hundreds to thousands of people who end up getting admitted to hospital um, and die prematurely because they've, they've managed to overheat for various reasons. Wow, that, that is worrisome. Um, so do these risks, we'll talk about heat first, uh, does heat affect people differently depending on whether they're living in a city or a regional or rural area? So what, what happens with individuals is that if, if you're fit and healthy, um, you have a higher tolerance to that. So the most vulnerable people are the very young mm. Um Older people, people with a pre-existing medical condition, um, heat can also affect mental health. And, and so um, the authorities, police and emergency services know that um, mental health problems tend to get worse um, mm. when it's very hot. Um, people and, and, so the, and, and the other thing is people who don't have access to secure housing and um, sufficient energy. So we're, we're now facing a time where power um, prices are going up and some people may not be able to afford to turn their air conditioners on if they have one. Wow. Is, is that what they call energy poverty, that sort of situation? That, that's energy poverty or energy insecurity. So you get those combinations of, of um, personal condition plus broader socioeconomic factors that affect housing um, and and where people live uh, that have an effect. Uh, the other effect is also um, your immediate area. So in the leafy green suburbs uh, in the in the eastern side of the city, tend not to get as hot as the western side of the city. And this is actually a pattern that's, that's repeated all over Australia. So West Brisbane, West Sydney, West Melbourne. Um, the newer, perhaps less leaf, leafy um, suburbs tend to get hotter. And the other thing is that now we're clearing blocks, we're putting houses um, to the fence, that some of these areas can get very hot in summer. Mm. It, it seems like a parallel to COVID when the people who can least afford to be prepared and, and protect themselves are the ones who get impacted the most. That is absolutely the case, and, and, and that is really the case with almost all climate-driven uh, risks 
that, that we look at is that the vulnerable are the most affected. So moving to a more action-based uh, approach, um, for people living in cities, uh, what are some things they can do to prepare for heat in particular? So if we sort of start now, um, that w- when, when you look at the data, um, that first pulse of heat um, in late spring, summer, when it gets over 30, 35, um, actually has higher admissions to medical centres and hospitals than later on. And it's because people aren't fully yet acclimatised to the heat. Mm. So one of the things that people can do now while spring before it before it gets too hot um, is actually make sure that you go for walks, go outside, get the exercise that you can, and then you'll be better acclimatised. Um, some of the other things is that often what happens to people when it does get hot is that they get disoriented. Mm. And um, so it's really good to have a network um, if you've got a neighbour or people in the area who, you know, might be a bit vulnerable, um, open up those contacts and, and make sure that if there's been a succession of hot days that you can check on people to see that they're OK. Um, that sort of thing. So councils are now putting together registers of vulnerable people, but it's great to open up your networks, but also to check up on, on other people who you know who might be vulnerable. Um, on a regular basis to see whether they're okay. When uh, the events actually occur, the biggest risks uh, are associated with nighttime temperatures not coming down enough. Mm. So we've had events in the past where it's been 35 at midnight, and they are really high risk periods. So if we get a succession of four or five days, when it's maybe above 35, 40 in the daytime and it's still not getting below 20, 25 or even 30 at night, um, a couple of days can really affect people. Uh, and that's in, in doing that, it's actually really important for people to get their temperatures back down. So if they can't do that physically, even having a old shower, ice packs in a T-shirt, uh, all sorts of things like that people can do to make sure they get their core temperature back down, get a reset, uh, and it means that they can then be, you know, better off the next day. So that's the kind of thing if you don't have, you know, air conditioning, you can cool your whole house down. There are various other things that you can do. Um, there's the old uh, wet sheet with a fan behind it, all mm-hmm. sorts of things like that, um, wet sheets over curtains on windows. Um, yeah, there are lots of things that you can do. People visit shopping centres. Um, one of the things that I think we should be doing more of is making sure that water is available um, outdoor in certain places in parks. Mm. Um, having misting areas is actually really good. And um, I was listening to uh, PM the other night and up in Sydney... Um, there are areas where they haven't turned the fountains on yet. Wow. And, of course, that's that's one of the places where people can go on these really hot days. So, yeah, it's a combination of personal actions you can take, but we can also more broadly make the environment safer. And, and of course, parks and places like that where you've got cool areas are really, really valuable. And councils are recognising that around Melbourne that, 
often the parks aren't fit for purpose for really hot weather. So there's been a lot of investment to make sure that they're improved. Yeah. Hi, Roger. I'm Rob, um, also a presenter of, of the show. I just wanted to ask a question about um, the the workforce in Australia, you know, like as these heat waves become more and more common and especially like casualized and people in like industries that where they have to work outside. I just wanted to ask how you see the workforce kind of shifting in the country. Well, um, so the work we've done at where we've looked at unionized workforce forces and um, where there are safety regulations in place, um, mm. they are more protected. But it's um, fruit picking has been one thing that's been nominated, uh, and, and insecure farm work. And there's that whole issue of pay and who's doing that uh, and what the conditions are. So, yeah, there are certainly some some industries, some areas that are particularly vulnerable where people don't have the protections, where others are. And, um, say, in construction, where it's more formalised, um, they now have to build uh, the possibility that they need to close down when it's really hot. Um in, into their work plans because uh, it's just not safe to work outside. Mm. And and do you think um, industries such as the construction industry and um, other things that you mentioned have already started to catch on about this? They have because um, compensation is actually really expensive. And the other thing is that people get affected for their whole working lives. So... Um, Getting really bad heat stroke can be uh, incredibly debilitating, um, and it's it's especially difficult for the vulnerable. So, um, this again, you know, older people or people with dementia or things like that, it can take them weeks or months to recover from uh, an overheating event. So, yeah, it's it's come onto people's radar, but there are still those more vulnerable industries where there isn't that protection. The employers say that we necessarily can't pay and all sorts of things like that. Mm. And um, that really has to be sorted out. Great. Um, now, Roger, 3CR does have a lot of listeners who live in regional and rural areas as well. Uh, for yep. the upcoming season, what sort of things can people do to prepare for summer if they live in those sorts of areas? Uh, well, both there and in the city, I mean, I've... <laughs> I've been talking to one of my sons who rents in the city and, and he is um, putting a, a temporary awning up over a west-facing window mm. and make sure that um, that can be a little bit cheaper. So um, putting things up like temporary shade cloth, all sorts of things like that, making sure that you've got cool areas, um, ensuring that your your house and the environment is, is around there. If we're talking about fire, um, making sure that... Um, all of this rainfall, which is vegetation, particularly grassy, low vegetation that's prone to dry out, needs to be cleared out from around your house um, mm. and, and the areas like that. It's actually really important. And we haven't talked much about fire risk, but the, the most risky areas will not, not be big forest fires necessarily uh, in the coming season, but on the verges of towns and in grassland areas. Grassland fires can be very fast, and so it's possible that people have recently moved into areas in the west of Melbourne. Um, 
on the edge, on the edges, um, might be endangered, whereas they necessarily think, well, we're in the city, we, we won't be in danger. So all of those people need to think about having a fire plan when they would leave, letting their relatives know um, that if they bail out that they might be um, arriving to take refuge there and all sorts of things like that. Again, having early plans set in place and rehearsing them is really, really important. Mm-hmm. That's great, Roger. Thanks so much. Uh, just before we let you go, uh, are there any resources or websites you could direct people towards if they want to learn more? Yep, the, the CFA uh, has got um, terrific uh, information on uh, protecting your home in terms of all of that. Um, the CSIRO, Justin Leonard, if you want to know more about actually protecting your house and structural things you can do, um, their site... Uh, for, for adapting to bushfire is terrific. Um, local councils, a lot of this health stuff, um, if people go out and Google it and you look for, you know, uh, what can I do to manage extreme heat, um, all of those things are provided. Uh, the Red Cross has material. A lot of local councils, a lot of health, climate and health sites have that kind of guidance. So there really is quite a lot out there. Um, people just need to look and find it and and build up their plans. Fantastic. Roger, thanks so much for joining Monday Breakfast today. Not a problem. My pleasure. That was Roger Jones, a professorial research fellow at the Institute for Sustainable Industries in Liverpool Cities at Victoria University. Now we're going to jump to another song now. This is another legendary artist. Uh, this is I've Lied by Archie Roach. <laughs> Sitting here in a lonely old guest house I'm sure that my life is all through Scratching free and watching the grey mouse I'm making love to the memory of you For without you I'm weak and uncertain And I feel so naked and cold Like a window without any curtain My innermost feelings unfold The drink I just had it wasn't as bad as the first But drinking won't do When it's only for you I thirst I thirst For your kiss It quenches or burning It's sweeter then the sweetest of wine Now you're gone I find myself yearning For the love that I left behind Nobody can heal The pain that I feel 
inside And if I said I'm strong And I'm never wrong I've lied I've lied You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Now let's talk about the one thing I think a lot of media outlets are going to be discussing for a very long time now. Rupert Murdoch, age 92, uh, the media mogul, is stepping down as chairman of Fox Corporation and News Corp. But he will still stay in the role of chairman emeritus, presumably because he's going to help guide his elder son Lachlan as the new head of the firm. So this is big news for media media organizations, everyone. Massive, 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 massive. massive. Um, I mean, he's already age 92. He's definitely going to drop at one point, obviously. (laughs) He can't stay till he's 100, now can he? So his departure was always going to come. We all knew it was coming. So he's either going to drop, just drop off the perch, or he's probably just going to leave whenever he wants to. But he has decided for the latter, obviously, uh, and... This this is probably this means that because the company has chosen to manage the transition in a market favorable way, Murdoch said, "For my entire professional life, I've been engaged daily with news and ideas, and that will not change. But the time is right for me to take on different roles, knowing that we have truly talented teams." Lachlan Murdoch, his son, will become the sole chair of News Corp and continue as executive chair and chief executive of Fox following the annual general meetings in mid-November. So yeah, just remember, Rupert will be appointed chairman emeritus of each company. So yeah, this is big, big news already. What's your, what's your thoughts, Rob and James? Um, I'm actually mostly, obviously, like every election in the Western world is going to be impacted, this, impacted by this on a massive mm-hmm. scale. Um, but I'm primarily just literally right now came to the top of my head thinking about James Murdoch, who is, I guess, you know, pretty outspoken for the climate crisis Mm. against his family's wishes and, Mm. you know, views that they've just embedded into, you know, all of the media outlets that they own across the world. I'm, yeah, pretty curious to see what happens with James Murdoch and um, if... If the Murdoch Empire will change in any way as views on the climate crisis, mm. um, there was a great article in the Guardian uh, talking about Murdoch's climate legacy, mm. um, with 
and I had so many different scientists and doctors and professors having little quotes just saying, Murdoch's a climate villain. Mm. <laughs> He's single-handedly disrupted the climate movement in a profound way. And, you know, history will look back upon him if we get through this in a really, really negative way because he's had such a negative impact on, you know, our efforts to reduce emissions and mitigate and adapt to climate change. Mm. So, and it's so interesting that James Murdoch is now on the climate crisis um, as, as an ally. Um, You know, a few years ago he had that big moment where he's like, my family's doing a lot of trouble, a lot of, lot of damage to the world. Um, and, And this is me saying this as someone who studied climate change at master's level. Um, when I did that course, Master of Environment at Melbourne University, you know, Murdoch was just like this this super villain <laughs> that mm. we all had to figure out mm. how to combat the way his organizations deal with this topic, which is just completely subpar and very mm. irresponsible. Yeah. So in the climate movement, this could be a really good thing. I do speculate that Murdoch, uh, Rupert Murdoch, wouldn't step down if he wasn't confident that it will keep doing what he wants it to do. Yeah, Mm. especially because, I mean, Rupert is also still leading Lachlan in all these things. Mm. Uh, Rupert is still going to, Rupert Murdoch is still going to be leading his son in whatever he needs to guide him for. So Mm. we we won't, we can't really say for sure how the things are going to change. And just because the big boss has stand down, I don't think it necessarily can affect that much of a change as well because yeah. r- rules and regulation they don't just go away that easily yeah unless the big boss says so yeah and Rupert Murdoch has you know for so long just been the like image of the Murdoch empire and all of the media outlets so I should News imagine yeah. yeah I should imagine that it's just it's going to be really hard to have a Murdoch you know empire and all the media outlets without Rupert, Rupert's voice every now and then, even if he is retired mm. or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 media machine that he set up, it's it's like tabloid journalism, you know, clickbait yeah. in the most, uh, for lack of a better term, arousing like high high intense emotion arousing content. Right, it's clickbait, but yeah. journalism and and TV and stuff. Yeah. And he set that machine up and it's profited so much off, you know, generating headlines and fear and those sorts of things. Yeah. And I think that is something you can't put back in the box. You know, he's built this, he's released it into the world, making him so much money and making a lot of people a lot of money. It's playing a huge role in elections, you know, so politicians want to be a part of this juggernaut. And, you know, even with Rupert stepping down, this thing's going to keep chugging because it's all about profit. It's all about how can we turn this TV, this media, this newspaper into something that's sustainable financially, which is profit, profit, profit. So it'll keep on chugging. Mm. And that makes me want to be at a place like 3CR so much more as well. We offer such a different viewpoint such a grassroots and community-based entry into the media landscape, I guess you could say. 
and you know places like this are going to remain so important i mm. think moving forward yeah so great work everybody <laughs> we're doing our bit yeah great news for the media and i hope everything goes well for the future of media and doesn't get condensed as much as it already is so yeah yeah let's see it's, it's i i think it's um as someone with uh, a journalism degree. It's it's quite refreshing to be at 3CR and not have to kind of get away from as much as you know humanly possible in this day and age of like digital news and a 24-hour news cycle. It's it's quite refreshing on my end to get away from the Murdoch media landscape mm. and yeah, you know, devote my uh, time and attention and and journalistic skills to 3CR instead. Yeah, I think what I love about community radio here is that it's so open and it gives a lot of opportunity on what we can speak about and who we can talk to because mm. I remember when I was learning I mean I'm still learning journalism in uni and you know there are things said and things what we about what we can talk about and and who we can talk to like they they guide us on a specific way of like no there's a reason why you have to choose these kind of people because of the timeliness and everything but then um, when I'm here, what's more important is that the the issues that still are, still are meant to be talked about are still talked about, mm. and it's uh, of course timeliness is so important in meet in journalism. But at the same time, it's like it's more about like the issues that are still perpetrating, and you know, there's still going to be a lot of timely news still coming out about it. It's not about what's current now that you think the headlines should be about, and people will want to listen to. It's really just more about the importance of the issue and the topic. Mm. So that, like, people who are constantly underheard and undermined, you know, that's mm. an issue constantly happening. Yes, we know it's been going on for so long, but, you know, things keep coming up and I think that's what's more important and I, I'm great, I'm glad for, grateful that 3CR gives us that opportunity to still keep talking about it no matter what if people think that, oh, no, this is not current issue or topic anymore because it's been happening for so long. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. Comedy radio is Good thing. It's good, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. feels Support good. Community radio. Yeah, and also I get to explore a lot. Like I think Tracy has given me a lot of opportunity as a student to yeah. f- facilitate and help me grow my media career. Yeah. So yeah, I'm grateful. Yeah. You don't have to contribute to media organizations that don't believe in climate change and rig elections. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's always a plus. It's, yeah, a, it's a low, it's a low bar, isn't it, in the media world? <laughs> yeah. Great chat, gang. We got some places there. Uh, we're going to go to a few announcements now, then a song, and then we've got an interview with the founder of the I Am Me organization. The fears are Palestinian scarves. And they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes for fears. And all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafirs.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S dot A 3CR supporter. Mm-hmm. 
We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. Waiting on a sign I've been paying my dues But I can't seem to Rewind, renew Without feeling like I'm dying There's this man on my street Like he's had more than a few. More than a few. I think maybe if he came around, that we could at least feel like we're trying. When my shift comes in, shit, I could see it now.
You're listening to Monday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. That was When My Ship Comes In by Quality Used Cars. Um, now we're going to move to speak to Jamie Sultana, co-founder of the I Am Me Foundation and also Tash Sultana's wife. Uh, the I Am Me Foundation exists to help fund medical help for trans and gender diverse people and their transitions. How are you going, Jamie? I'm great. How are you? Good, thanks. Um, do you want to just run me through sort of how the foundation started off, first of all? Well, the idea kind of came about about seven years ago. Uh, it's something Tash has always wanted to do, obviously being a gender-diverse person themselves. Uh, but, you know, everyone's journey can be quite long and quite difficult. So it's been in the making for a long, long time and only now is Tash in a really good space mentally and within themselves where they can launch something like this, obviously, as their platform is quite large. It's quite a scary thing to do. So it's been a long time in the making. Wow, wow. Um, and how is it, like, as um, Tash's wife, um, can you speak to what it has been like to watch Tash sort of you know, become more comfortable with themselves and then ultimately step into this role as, you know, co-founder of this amazing foundation? Yeah, um, I honestly, I couldn't be more proud. I We've been together for about seven years uh, and obviously a lot has changed in that time and supporting somebody who is on a gender journey can be quite difficult. It's also very rewarding at the same time. Um, but I'm just very, very proud. Uh, it's really taken a lot to get to this point. And I, I applaud Tash for being strong enough to do something like this and stand up for a minority community that often doesn't have somebody in the spotlight standing up and supporting them and saying, hey, we're here and this is normal, and treat us just the same as you would treat anybody else. Mm. So I'm really, really proud. That's so wonderful to hear. Um, yeah, especially um, considering you're, you're their partner and you've been standing alongside them 
alongside them the entire time. Um, Jamie, I'm just wondering if you could sort of just give me uh, a bit a bit more of a rundown about what the foundation actually does. So basically, we're offering grants uh, to support people in their journey uh, from mental health support, so psychology, uh, voice therapy, HRT, uh, all the way up to surgery. Uh, our, our plan is to build a community. We're not just a normal foundation or charity where it's very black and white. Here you go, you know, apply get what you need and then see you later. That's not really our plan. Mm. Um, we want to kind of be a part of their journey and help them along the way because as we've seen, you know, it is a long journey and it's a lot of people are doing it alone. So we're kind of there to bridge the gap for those people. A lot of people can't afford anything to do with transitioning or just becoming themselves as a gender diverse person. So that's where we step in, basically, is offering the grants to help them become themselves. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just so amazing to hear that this exists. And I wish, you know, not that I, as a, a gender diverse person myself, not that I have, um, I don't know, not that I've transitioned me- medically, I guess, but it is super daunting to hear, you know, you kind of like come to terms with who you are and how you describe yourself, I guess, and then all of a sudden you've got all of these things to consider, like uh, which psychologist am I going to go to? Like, do I need to, do I want to change my body? Like, it's just super daunting, all of the things to um, consider and then all of the expenses attached to all of that. Um, Could you just tell me, Jamie, a little bit more about how the process of how people kind of apply for their funding and how they access it? Yeah, it's it's very, very basic. You just go to our website, which is www.ime.org.au, and just hit the apply button. It's a very uh, simple process to apply. Obviously, uh, there are there are there is quite a lot of criteria involved uh, to be eligible. Um, it's Australian only at the moment. We're only facilitating people in Australia. Um, and then we go through each one. We let people know whether or not they've uh, got the grant, and then that that's pretty much it. You just apply, let us know your story, give us all your information, you know, whether you've seen psychologists in the past, whether you've talked to surgeons, all of that stuff, and then we have an advisory board. We all come together and we make that decision together. Mm, beautiful. Um, and how do... I mean, how does the the money for the, the grants work? Like, do people donate towards that? Yeah, so we're a non-for-profit, so all our money comes from donations, from sponsors, uh, which is obviously, it's, it can be quite difficult, especially as a new foundation and, and quite a niche foundation to get people on board, but we're lucky to have a lot of really supportive people and a lot of really supportive uh, businesses and companies that have come on board as well. Uh, We're actually, we're having a launch event later on in the year uh, at 170 Russell. Uh, It's just, it's going to be a big IME launch event. Uh, 
it's going to be open to the general public, lots of VIPs, just wow. to get the word out there and, uh, you know, bring everyone together and kind of explain it and have a bit of fun. Yeah, beautiful. Um, I'm wondering if you could maybe, um, if it's possible, share a sort of success story of the foundation and what its funding can do for people. Well, we only launched about three or four weeks ago, so we are yet to offer a grant to somebody. Applications are open now, hmm. uh, and our goal is to announce the first grant recipient at our charity event in December, so that hmm. will be the first big step. Uh, a side note to that is that Tash and I are also launching a beverage company called Lonelylands Liquids, where a portion of each can sold goes directly back to the foundation. Wow. So it's just a big circle of giving, basically. Wow. So they will be there at the, at the event as well. Um, but, yeah, it's all, it's all pretty black and white. You can yeah. head to the website if you're interested. Mm. Uh, head to our social media to keep informed on... On the event, we haven't officially announced it yet, so you're the first one to know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> that's so awesome. Um, yeah, I also just wanted to ask, you know, obviously, uh, you, as you said, you've been seeing Tash for seven years. I just wanted to ask how it, what it's like running a foundation with them. And obviously, like, we have to talk about, like, how Tash's hugely successful career as a musician intertwines with that. Well, I think, I mean, running a business in general with your partner obviously has its ups and downs. But luckily, Natasha and I, we have the exact same work ethic. Mm. We're generally on the same page nine times out of ten. Uh, <laughs> I'm a lot more bossy than they are. Um, but no, it's it's really nice. I think it brings you closer together as a couple. And in terms of running a foundation together, it's... It's just a really beautiful thing to see somebody come out of them out of their shell that much to be able to be brave enough to do something like this. So it's it's really really nice. Nice. Um, and can you just sort of tell us more about the the launch? So it'll be open to the general public. It's later this year, right? At one seventy Russell. Yes, it's going to be December 13 at 170 Russell. Uh, you would have to go to our socials to get all the details once it's announced. I can't mm. really give away too much more. Yeah. <laughs> but it will be it will be really fun and it's you know, it's a charity event so it's worth coming to and meeting people and it's a good it's a good place for trans and non-binary people to meet other people like them because a lot of people feel very alone, which yep. is why we we would like our charity to be more of a community hub than just a foundation. Mm. Yeah, that's super important. I Yeah, I can definitely speak to how isolating coming out can be and what it can kind of do to pretty much every every uh, aspect of your life um, and has you know, the ability to really isolate someone. Um, so it's really beautiful that it's not just a foundation, but also a community. Um, yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a lot of, you know, transphobia and homophobia still today, which is, it's quite surprising. Uh, 
you know, for someone like Tash who, you know, announced this foundation on their social media, there was there was a lot of hate amongst amongst the beautiful messages as well, but it just goes to show that a foundation like this really is necessary because there's still people like this are still the minority, unfortunately, and a lot of people still don't understand. So if we can have a community where we're, you know, we're saying we welcome you with open arms, we don't, we don't care how you identify, we love you anyway. Uh, that I think is it's a big deal, especially on a platform like that. It's quite a brave thing to do yep. to step out into into that and say, hey, this is what I'm doing, this is what I stand for, I want you to come and be involved, and if you don't like it, I don't really care. Mm. Hi, Jamie. Uh, this is Grace, uh, one of the presenters here, Man- Brecky. Uh, I just wanted to ask, because I actually talked to M. Reitman, who is a writer uh, at Overland, and they actually wrote a story about how it's important for knowledge transfer and storytelling that's to help protect better protect trans people and they they talk about how it's very important to tell stories about their experience in regards to doing surgery so i just wanted to ask like how 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 do you think ime foundation is going to tell a story to help people better understand the community yeah, well, basically, earlier on in the year, we put a call out to any trans non-binary people that wanted to be a part of helping us get this foundation off the ground. So we sat down and we interviewed all of these people. Uh, all of these videos are on our YouTube channel. Uh, basically, just everyone explaining their story. And each one of those that goes out online, you know, at least somebody can relate to. And I think it's important for those people to go, okay, wow, I'm not alone. Their story is so similar Mm. to mine and now I don't feel alone anymore. So a lot of what we plan on doing in the future is having, you know, your everyday person, your more prominent trans person, uh, telling their stories to us and making everyone feel included and inclusive and you know, it's normal to be this way. Mm, yeah, the more stories we tell, the easier it gets for other people to tell their own stories, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think it's just a really special thing. The trans non-binary community doesn't have a lot of support in many, many ways. Yep. So the fact that people are willing to use their platforms, big or small, to you know, be a friend and say, I'm here. If you need to chat, I know what you're going through. Important. Beautiful. All right, Jamie, I think that's I think that's all we have time for, but thank you very much for speaking about the foundation. Thanks for having me. That was Jamie Sultana, co-founder of the I Am Me Foundation and also Tash Sultana's wife. Uh, the I Am Me Foundation exists to help fund medical aid for trans and gender diverse people and their transitions. Um, As Jamie said, they're having a launch at 170 Russell later this year, and um, you can donate via their website. Fantastic. Great work, Rob. Thank you. And Grace, well done. Thank you. It's been a lovely show today. Yes, it has. We've got a big range. went from climate and then to something for a good cause. 
Yeah, yeah. It's good awesome. to end on that note, isn't it? Yep. Mm-hmm. So what's coming up for the week? What have we got? Well, I've got assignments because Ooh. I'm only three weeks, about three weeks, three, four weeks away till I finally finish my last, last semester. So it's, it's coming, it's coming. You're so I've, close. Yes, mm. it's very close. Um, gee, it's, it's still, I just still can't realize, I still can't imagine that like the, the weeks pass by so fast and mm. I'm graduating soon. Um, it's still not hitting me. It just, it's there. Like I know it's there, but it's not really like, I haven't come to my big realization yet. So yeah. Yeah. Wow. How about you, Rob? Not a whole lot. Not a whole lot for <laughs> oh, me this yeah. week, <laughs> which I'm pretty happy about. Um, to change my flat tire on my car. <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> Which I have to do today. Yucky. Um, and then, to be honest, I'm just going to be cruising through the short week. Yeah. Yeah. You know, short um, week. How about you, James? What you're looking forward to? Oh, uh, it's grand final week. Mm-hmm. So Melbourne as a city is going to be electric. Yep. Mm-hmm. Collingwood and Brisbane, who used to be Fitzroy, so two, you know, local teams you could call it, mm. are in it. It's going to be big. I'm going to be dialed in. Mm. Um, pub footy, uh, the the league I play for, which is an all gender league, we play on Friday, uh, a big day at Vic Park, all day, grand final awesome. eve, great day, free entry, six dollar cans of drinks and sausages and DJs. Wow! So that's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah. Gonna be a uh, big weekend. Mm. Yeah. Any reads on the final? What do you Collingwood. Think? Collingwood. <laughs> yep. Collingwood at the MCG. No worries. Easy. No worries at all. Nice. Sweet. Well, thank you everyone for tuning into today's show, and catch you next week. Stay tuned. Three CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You're with 3CR Radio this morning on 855am, or maybe you're listening on the web somewhere at 3cr.org.au or on digital radio at 3CR Digital. Stay with us.